0: hey Puches, what up what up uh, actually i just came
1: back from new york so i should say uh how you doing is that, is that how you say it uh see si. uh yo soy si. just came back from spain <laughs> how was how was that uh magnifico
0: excellent i loved it. Is barcelona
1: a is a very very like walking friendly city and i ended oh, up nice. walking like close to 10 miles every day Wow. Yeah. 10 miles. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, oh, a, that's a lot of walking, but, um, true. yeah. So I, I walked a ton. The weather was beautiful. Um, the city was beautiful. I just, I just love, I love walking in Europe. It's one thing you don't, cause uh, you know, Kuwait is like probably less pedestrian friendly than LA. Oh yeah. And yeah. even if it was structured that way, it's hot as hell. Um, true. so the, I, I really don't get much walking done here, but over there like in spain was just beautiful i'm telling you man i i really i i am absolutely willing to live as a nomad for the rest of my life i have no intention of like (laughs) buying a house and settling down as that shit i just i I definitely want to just get an airbnb in spain for the next three months and then i'll find somewhere else for the next three months after that honestly that
0: kind of works i mean work is remote and then like you never really want to settle down in one single place although i i'm a little different because i i've mentioned this in our twitter space but you know kind of like what you mentioned in terms of walking walking is yep. definitely a very good big thing that i like to do and the fact that it's like you know not as pedestrian friendly in la means that when i went to new york like what was it like 18 000 to twenty thousand steps a day and i was used to go like up central park down central park and like wow. new york is nice because it's it's very much a european city that's just not as
1: You know sleepy like it's awake and it's kind of active you know well i mean i think it's a cooler european city or at least more active european city than all of them except like london
0: true yeah and that's what i'd say so too but i I love london london's great I, i i just love london not only because of walking like being able to walk around like kind of you know you are just casually walking, you walk by like history, basically like Westminster Abbey and all those different like historical landmarks. But the biggest thing I think that I really missed when I went to New York and like, I miss now coming back and being in LA is, um, what's it called? Public transportation, just normal public transportation. I can't believe like
1: LA is this massive city that doesn't have that. It's too
0: spread out for public
1: transport to actually do anything unless you want to take the bus
0: true yeah like P- I-, I do know people who take the bus but like apparently because 2028 the olympics are going to be here all right and uh people and like i i hear these like initiatives are we're going to build a subway system and a metro line and whatever and every now and then you get your like occasional news flash that like oh they built the one from uh south central to lax but it's like okay it's like one line like <laughs> yeah. you know
1: i don't know we- i we think with what's it. happening in la because like I was dead set on moving to L.A. up until like a couple, I don't know, weeks mm. ago, maybe. But it's, um, what's happening to L.A. is just making it less and less attractive. At the same time, what's happening to the states as a whole is making it less and less attractive. But mm. I am—I'm uh, telling you, I'm all for that digital nomad shit.
0: I kind of like it too, because because then you you don't like really settle down in one place, especially if it's like, you know, you don't need to be in meetings and worry about time time zone differences and that Uh type of stuff then yeah i would love the fact of like okay keep like section off a part of your day for work and then go like explore whichever city you're in
1: yeah and if uh, if you're working on u.s time and the workable parts of the day are technically the evening if you're going to be in this part of the world like europe middle east then the mornings are yours and that works for me honestly true
0: yeah mornings are yours and then you don't get to worry about work until like what 4 p.m 5 p.m maybe
1: Uh, later even you know by the time people wake up and actually want to talk to you oh true true (laughs) yeah yeah
0: It's weird though like it's kind of it's kind of very interesting because i think you you and i have kind of been the same in like when we were in Kuwait, we're like let's get out of Kuwait. la was awesome but now i think both of us have had the time to kind of explore different cities and go like wait like these different cities are kind of not too bad as well
1: just saying if if i was like if i was born 200 years prior to so when i was actually born i probably would have spent life as like some merchant marine <laughs> probably i'd be a i don't know, you know that, yeah. you'd see like you know you'd visit a hundred ports yeah. there's about maybe 80 or 90 very ang- angry pregnant women
0: <laughs> like quite quite yeah kuwaitis would be known for that like You'd see signs in like France like beware quay
1: sailors. <laughs> Oops. Oh. <laughs> That's okay, I'm, funny. I'm am I know we're going to get angry emails for that one but i don't give a shit. Anyway, oh, for sure. Yeah. Our our, our lawyers are going to have, have to work with that. Uh, yeah, DMs, DMs. Yeah, our, our, our imaginary
0: lawyers are going to have to uh work hard to to fight that.
1: Yeah, or our one one lawyer we, we can't actually afford.
0: <laughs> yeah true
1: hi Dan or, or, or the <laughs> or or the one social media intern right because we still have right. that guy like chilling right oh right right yeah I think yeah. um he's due to be shot I think in the late summer so we have him for a little <laughs> we have him for a little longer right. exactly yeah. anyhow all is anyhow. not well in Denmark
0: true <laughs> is that a saying I think I've never heard of that one before yeah um, it's, it's Shakespeare you uh unread oh. swine but go ahead I am uncultured. I know this isn't a video podcast, but I have a bookshelf behind me that makes me look smart. But I am very uncultured. you
1: do not have a bookshelf behind you. You have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten books behind you. No, I can count them. That's not a there's, shelf. There's shit there's shit behind them though. There's more books. That's a printer.
0: <laughs> okay. There it is. A few, a few. Moving on. Um, but anyways, yeah, all's not well in Denmark today i learned um but yeah, it's like it's, it's really like weird kind of saying this but we haven't really heard like public bad news about a startup in quite some time i know you see right. like your occasional netflix show about theranos or or uh or we crashed on apple tv but like it's kind of blinds us to the fact that like the mania and the fever of the past few years have been you know We've seen simple ideas raising millions of dollars and then startups with any sort of revenue raising it like 50x, 100x. And according to one investor on my timeline, even like uh, 1,000x ARRs. So the multiples are crazy. People are raising for no reason at all because money's free and it's all over the place at the moment. So, you know, that was kind of the norm that I've kind of set myself to for the past year. But then the minute you see Fast, so Fast is like such a massive, like a company with such a massive presence on twitter and their ceo dom is pretty loud so when you see like the loudest company on twitter with the largest presence and like a flashy marketing for a ceo announcing that they're raising a down round because the company with a monthly burn of 10 million dollars was able to muster up only 600k in annual revenue and is cutting 50 percent their workforce that kind of came as a surprise like whoa shit wait like the the music might be uh you know, not stopping completely, but it must like the volume on it is kind of going down just a little bit. Um, it's like, yeah, not not all as yeah. well. The CD in, skipped. Like, yeah, basically, the CD skipped. Yeah, I'm actually surprised um, you even know what that means. But okay, I, I'm still. I think the the one thing I'd say about that is like growing up in the early 2000s in a third world country is very much like growing up in the 90s in the US, right? We still had a lot of like. <laughs>
1: Old shows, <laughs> we got it on lag, <laughs> yeah, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's. I still remember like floppy disks and CRT tu- CRT tubes and the Clippy. I had a talk with one of our advisors about Clippy and how annoying he was. But um, oh, man, good times, good times, right? Um, but yeah, so so going back to the fast stuff, like a game is quite a surprise that they weren't, you know they raised a ton of money from stripe and index ventures and like next thing you know they're raising a down round because with all that money and all that marketing and that like presence on social media they they were only able to get like 600k in annual revenue um so like you think like a lot can be attributed to this right you know the scanning through a couple of the articles that I did as well, I was like prepping for this episode i saw a few things like a small flaw in their business plan where they basically targeted businesses with low transaction volume, and you know, if you're a company that takes like a small cut of a transaction, that's not really what you want to, you know, go after. Um, that small misstep was capitalized on by competitors like Bolt, who in the same year had about 50 mil in revenue. Wow. Um, so that could be one thing. Another thing is like maybe the CEO's tendency to kind of cross moral and ethical lines when he's backed into a corner. Um, that's one thing I've seen those articles too, where basically, um, apparently Dom. Uh, Dom Holland, the CEO of Fast, has a history in previous startups of you know shit hitting the fan, then him doing very uh suspicious things to kind of get out of it. The biggest example of uh before he actually came to the US and started FAST, there was one thing called uh tow.com.au. So it's basically a um a marketplace for uh tow oh? trucks and then uh, tow, uh tow okay. I thought you meant yeah. like the frog. Okay. Oh t- <laughs> um Toad, that'd be a cool startup name. Actually, um, these headphones are shit. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I feel. And also we're on different sides of the planet, so can't, right, can't yeah. blame that. Um, but um, yeah, so so tow.com.au, which is basically a start a startup that he started, which is um it pretty much is a marketplace for you know tow truck drivers and then anyone who needs their car towed, basically. Um the one thing they were able to do is they were able to sign a deal with the if I remember correctly, the Queensland state like police basically for any cars that need to be impounded or taken to somewhere. Um, so that that seemed like it was going pretty well, but then they hit like a snag where um they had some money problems, and then what Dom was it basically did was he left a lot of the tow truck drivers in in debt pretty much or in the dust. Um, wasn't able to pay them back all the money that they were owned, and then ended up suing the government because of some payment issues and caught. Con- violations of certain clauses in their contract. So what actually ended up coming out of that is he just moved to the US and had everyone call him by his nickname, which is Dom. and you know everyone back there, even as fast as turning into this massive massive thing, was kind of just left waiting for their money and just being in debt. Yeah. Um, another another part of it like zooming further in the future is um, when they were building the prototype for fast after he'd started it, um, he you know, leveraged the help of Nigerian developers. Um, and kind of, as is mentioned, the articles as well, and this is something we've done as well here at Abstract. Um, we, you know, reaching out over, overseas for kind of help with developing is not uncommon in startups now, especially now because, you know, no one's really willing to leave their jobs. And hiring has become such a massive process and such a resource intensive process where um, if you need help immediately, um, it's just not it just doesn't make sense to set up a hiring pipeline and hire people here because there's a lot that needs to happen. Right. So you end up going to like near-shoring services, offshoring services, dev shops, so on and so forth. So when Dom was doing that, he reached out to developers in Nigeria that built the first prototype of FAST, the whole checkout experience that they're well known for. Um, but then on one day they had uh, some sort of miscommunication about payments and wages and Next thing you know, the Nigerian developers can't log into the Fast's um, Slack workspace. Um, and then what they later realized as well is when Dom was was when Dom was pitching that to investors, uh, he said that he built the prototype. It wasn't built with collaboration with like, Nigerian developers or anyone. So you know, kind of a low blow there. But you know, it, this is the type of things that he deals with in order to avoid cracking under pressure. Um, so you know, this is this was a lot of stuff that was even overlooked by investors. Um,
1: when they were investing in basically this is an example of a company that is incredible at pr but crap at business right exactly they give you the impression that they somehow have this like commanding market share and people are like bowing to them when in reality they're just like some you know little smudge in the corner nobody really cared right that's kind of true
0: as well and like i think it all goes back to you know Fast has been kind of always sort of an enigma, and they were able to corner such a tiny, tiny like niche of the e-commerce industry and kind of at the same, same time kind of present themselves as a company that just ran the whole industry, like a Shopify or Amazon. Amazon. Um, going back to the point I was mentioning about timelines, I mean... They had merch, they had flashy ads. The CEO was like skydiving and coming out of race cars and just for simple, everyday, basic announcements. And that's all LP money, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, So, like, yeah, I wonder how they feel kind of looking at that type of stuff and knowing where the business was headed metrics wise. But um, yeah, I mean, it just, it just, All the provocative tweets and the Twitter presence and everything, it just made you question like what was the actual business? Like it didn't really put the message across of like fast as a checkout experience. It was just like, oh, you guys kind of sound like a Red Bull because you're doing crazy shit with money. And you know, there's nothing to really fuel it besides investor money. Um, so you know, that was a very big question mark at the early stages of fast. And then now they've grown a little bit, but then as we kind of mentioned, they have hit a snag and they are raising it down round. Um, there's not much to kind of cover with respect to like exactly what is going on, because that's pretty much it. It's just, you know, we're in an environment now where people are being called out on their BS and where they're going right. out to raise, it's no longer, okay, what's the direction you're still headed in and what's the story you're trying to tell because you're not really early stage anymore. It's more of a, you know, where's, where's, where's the money, you know, See, you're burning this, 10 million this reminds me won. of
1: the, uh, I want to say this reminds me of the uh, um, uh, Nicholas Stadub, uh, um analogy he brought in one of his books. I can't remember which one it was, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of tearing down this opinion that markets are truly perfect in the way that they convey uh, you know, information about the participants and their activities and that kind of a thing. Like efficient market hypothesis theory has kind of been debunked a mm-hmm. hundred different times. And what only beco- what truly becomes novel is how they intend to debunk it this time. So the one that yeah. Talib mentioned was uh, something along the lines of uh, uh you know look at the uh, animal kingdom right so survival mm-hmm. of the fittest and the fittest is the one who ends up you know passing their genes on to the next generation and the not so fit ends up dying out before they can procreate and and mm-hmm. that's how uh, evolution kind of perpetuates itself right um yeah. so the socioeconomic version of that would be if the truly financially smart and savvy people were the ones uh actually having uh, uh you know families and then teaching uh, their skill set to their family so that they can then perpetuate that uh quote unquote ideal um socioeconomic skill set well it, it doesn't really survive and and it's easier to use an analogy to explain why as to as to why that is so um you know assume a guy lives uh, you know as a trader uh makes good money lives within lives uh, well within his means you know nice little house uh it doesn't make a crazy amount of money, but enough that they're comfortable. Um, maybe has a sports car or two. Um, probably, you know, may or may not have gotten married. Um, saving, investing, gives to charity, that kind of thing. And then uh, you have his neighbor um who is an okay trader, makes some money, but is able to use that money to then just get a ton of leverage, get a ton of debt, uh, build a much larger house than what is necessary. Uh, you know, gets a trophy wife, has five kids. Um, mm-hmm. And they can all take turns driving one of his ten cars that he has bought very deeply in debt. Now, right. when the market turns, person A does relatively okay because they have a good, you know, capital cushion and not much leverage is going to take them down. Mm-hmm. Person B is going to eat it because they've made some very, very sure. poor financial decisions. However, elements within the market have allowed him to put up a facade of being vastly more successful than person A, and that's the person mm-hmm. who wound up you know, propagating the gene pool. So that's a failure. You can say of efficient markets because efficient markets said that the person who is, you know, subject to survival of the fittest and passes on their genes is, uh, is person a, because they were wiser, but person B the idiot is the one who, um, ultimately achieved that goal. So going back to the the way startups function, you would assume the startups that make the, the most noise and put up the best facade. Um, are the ones who are torn down by VCs because they look under the hood and realize there's not much going on there. But it turns out the uh, analogy of person A, person B works pretty well when you're talking about company A, company B.
0: True. Yeah. I definitely see that. And there's like, it's it's a very interesting point of like, it's hard to tell what's a company and what's a company B type or which, which company fits in which container until the music stops or at least the music slows down, right? Right um because as long as the music's playing like you you could see the craziest web3 idea or you could see the craziest govtech idea and you always think oh these guys have it going on you know like they they're they're growing they're raising they're announcing stuff they're being loud there's a presence they're they're really looking like they can like kill any sort of competition that comes up there but you know once once that main sort of fuel Or the main foundation of the facade kind of dies down a little bit you just notice oh crap like you guys aren't doing too well and that kind of starts the little slow but gradual and painful process of like crumbling and and eventually just imploding and failing and then you got to cut off like half your work workforce and all that and it just gets a little you know a little dusty and, and messy after that however with respect to the whole fast and dumb situation right like this is definitely a company b thing of like they've you know they've they've set themselves up as like this company that's going to change everything and change the world and while they were being loud right um other companies have capitalized on flaws in their business plan next thing you know now they're trying to raise a down round so it's it's pretty you know they're not trying if, to raise if a i down was round. oh they're not
1: interesting no they can't raise a round period they? they're they're uh they're up for sale
0: Oh really? Because yeah. I've seen uh, they might they must have like changed that. Because I've seen um, no no they've hired Morgan Stanley to
1: um, to, to sell, sell the company. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's even worse. Kind the thing of. is, this, this deal in all likelihood is going to fuck all the um, the employees because they they won't get a nickel.
0: Um, yeah, they're not going to get anything. And then not only all the employees, but all the employees that are going to survive the fifty percent layoff that's planned because they're trying to save the runway a little bit.
1: Yeah, but you know, the thing is like they raised like what, 120, 140 million dollars, something Roughly, like that. Roughly, I
0: think so. Yeah.
1: It's doubtful whether they can sell for more than that. True, you know? And yeah. um if that's the case, it's just, you know, investors are going to make the money back. Or even if they sell yeah. for a little more than that, they may not exceed the uh the threshold of the uh, you know, the liquidity um liquidity preference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if the investors have a liquidity preference of two, you know, and they raise 120, you know, I'm kind of extra, I'm I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, say that's, say there's a grand total of $200 million of outstanding liquidity preference. If they sell Um, for like 180, nobody makes shit. That's like, but what's really aggravating in all this is that the founders very likely have taken some money off the table by selling some of their shares in secondaries, meaning they're going to walk away from this train wreck rich
0: yeah yeah it's definitely gonna be another like rework situation, I feel. yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. so incentive wise, this is not great for markets. You've incentivized sure. people doing a shitty job to put up a facade of a great company, sell some uh, some of the garbage off in the secondaries, and then mm-hmm. walk away, you know, laughing to the bank and your employees are fucked, whereas yeah. you're rich because you did a shitty job. so this exactly. is this is one of those things that kind of makes people hate VC.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And private markets like as a whole.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it it does really tarnish the reputation of like, oh, a startup kind of sticking to its mission, growing past to this like very, very big thing where you notice like there are founders out there that are just, you know, they're, they're using a company and using hyper growth in a company to amplify their image. And yep. then once that image shits the bed, they just become a new person and take that money and move on.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it sucks because even if yeah. nobody wants to work with them and fund them ever again because they remember what they did, then mm-hmm. that person still has cash and can still go be an angel investor and still, you know, make his next hit or whatever and make an, another bundle of cash. And they did it. Exactly. How? By being a dick and making a shitty company. So but, exactly. but then again, and then, then again, we're, you're assuming the founder actually knew they were building a shitty company. Like, you know, everyone was egging them on and they raised oh. money earlier, being told that they raised that they started a good company. So yeah. there's a little presumptuousness there. But yeah.
0: Yeah. No, exactly. And then, and then I think going back to your point about like the shitty founders kind of becoming angel investors after their company shits the bed, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting and worrisome at the same time because, you know, you have to keep in mind that you know, a founder who kind of ran away with money from a company that he built that was, he or she built that was like failing. um, It's it's kind of worrisome because of two things. One, simply because now you're going to give your shitty advice to other startups who are like in a very early stage. And that was done already
1: too. They already gave shitty advice to a bunch of people.
0: Oh, really? That's, yeah, because now, you know, like, Hopefully this is not the case, but a couple of other fasts pop up in you know yeah. five years, maybe three years. And like that's the one issue. And then the other issue, of course, is just the fact that you know employees don't get a thing, even if they've been part of the journey for such a long time. And then on top of it, even on top of this all, um yeah, you could just, you know, the 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 angel the the shitty founder turned angel investor is going to have so much leverage investing in startups because any single startup that's early stage especially now given this whole new climate that we're going to be talking about is always going to be in a situation of I just, I'm I'm just going to have to take the money. I can't do anything because yeah. this is like do or die for my company. Um but I think in terms of the lessons like we can get a little bit philosophical here and zoom out uh-huh. because you know fast is like the one th- Company that's like currently going through this stuff. But when you zoom out a little and you kind of look at the entire timeline of companies who have like been extremely loud, said they're going to change the world, and then kind of shit the bed um, on a public stage, not, not you know, given that this industry is something that quietly buries its dead, uh, ones that have been out there and then died out there as well. Um, it, I guess there's the, the one lesson that can, can kind of be taken from this, which is especially when a startup is still in like as a private company and it's still raising, there's a lot of very finite resources that you'll need to spend smartly kind of, right? And you need to find the right message to amplify with said resources. So, you know, to clarify kind of one of of the articles that I checked out um, about this whole kind of fiasco had a few comments from an anonymous founder, uh, or sorry, an, an anonymous employee of Fast, who basically mentioned how like as the company was growing and things were being built, They'd only hear from Dom, the CEO, like once a month. And um, while they were working, and while the company was kind of growing, he was again skydiving, racing, doing all sorts of stuff that seemed to amplify purely his image and not yeah. really with Fast. We've we've seen this with so, so many other startups where like founder image is put over the company's mission. And those, in my opinion, like with the exception of a few massive, massive corporations now. Don't re- like don't succeed too often simply because any employee that joins the company is going to have to see the mission, and they're not really aligned with the mission of the company being oh make this dude more famous, mm-hmm. you know, and then like when the vision and mission is basically that like you really start questioning things like four hours into your sixteen hour workday <laughs> like everything's hitting the bed and you have to worry about all these different things and it's like oh where's the person that i'm supposed to be reporting to it's like oh he's uh he's at some networking event like getting hammered or something you know
1: this is the problem with ceos or founders who are um who are not really part of the team like there's a difference between like the late mm-hmm. tony shea who would uh, basically be on the floor with the rest of them in the same kind of cubicle as the rest of them working with people on the things that they themselves were working on and yeah. then i'm not going to name him but uh, a certain ceo or founder who is just considered to be this douche who comes in and cracks the whip every now and then uh-huh. make sure you're doing your work and you're punching at five and you know yeah the, the latter never works not in the early stages that douche ceo persona kicks in much later on but very early that is not sustainable for the business it does not rally the troops
0: not at all. Yeah, it is it is a very dangerous thing to have because I think this is this is actually like a public discussion I had on Twitter somewhere, but um there was this massive thread. They're asking people what the like most underrated skill as a leader or as a like a C level person, um what the most underrated skill that someone in that position can have. And uh-huh. the number one thing that kind of came out of it was like empathy. You know, right. You have to kind of feel that, like, it's not just you taking this risk. Everyone under you, like, everyone who's working, working is also taking a massive risk. And, like, Warking. what? Everyone who's working. Marking. 30%. I think that might be a, I don't know, my, my my accent is something that I need to work on a little bit. Because yep. I've, gone, I've gone from like Valley to New York where everyone's like, I'm walking here, like that type of yeah. shit. And <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, in, in a weird middle ground. Um, yeah. but no, it was <laughs> Kansas. Exactly. Um, yeah, but it's like, it's, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, um, when, when you're working with employees and employees like have families to feed and everything, they take the risk. Like, and even with everything that they've done, you see them as, oh, here's this like one cog in my system. And how can I tweak the system to make me better? Right. Um, once you start missing on the human aspect it just becomes such a horrible work environment. I think yeah. that's that's in my opinion. And what's very funny is I contributed to that thread and I basically said, especially in the unique scenario where you have technical founders. Uh, so founders who are engineers, because engineering undergrad is very, very helpful in the sense that it teaches you how to analyze and look at and balance and maintain systems. Right. Um, you know, like I, I got my undergrad in electrical engineering and it's like i of course i don't really work with transistors and amplifiers and that type of stuff on a daily basis but i was really able to take the system's knowledge from engineering and kind of extract that into management and like maybe software engineering as well right um but what sucks a lot is that they really like en- engineering undergrad no matter what school it is this isn't pointing out one specific university but they take out the human aspect of anything that you're working on and they were like if something's not working and you're in a team, Take over it, you know. Uh Say you don't know how to do this. Let me take over it. And like, if that doesn't really translate well into a company where you have, um, you know, people who are there to grow, and if they make one specific misstep, you just take over the entire project. It's there. There's a specific like clash of of different mentalities around this.
1: It's like running a startup with like a military coup type mentality. Basically,
0: yeah, and you start questioning all, all, all different sorts of stuff, and you know that the, once that default to trust kind of vanishes, it it gets very worrying. Yeah. Um, not to get too tangential though, um, as many have kind of said on Twitter regarding the whole fast situation, you know, founders really shouldn't shit on fast while they're down. You know, the, it is a facade and it is kind of tumbling right now, but. You know, starting a company and even reaching a position close to where Fast is at right now is a very, very huge feat. Yeah, um, I think they've just found themselves in a position where the business model doesn't really work. So the question now kind of becomes like, where do they go from here? You know, to away. like to away, <laughs> pretty much. Just it's just another name of a startup, which is interesting. Right. Um, to, so to point out the obvious, I mean. Their runway is limited, right? They're cutting employees to extend out a little bit, but like now they can't really find funding for anything new because investors are being a little more careful about the whole VCC now. It's definitely going to be like an interesting thing to watch them get out of. You know, they they've dug themselves in a pretty interesting hole. Seeing how they get out of it's going to be very interesting. So like, what is it? Is it going to be, you know, you know the the flaw in the business plan? Kind of going back a few minutes in this episode is you know they went after businesses with low transaction volume so is it maybe cover more than just the checkout experience in order to get you know in order for your product to have more value for a business and stick with the low transaction volume companies or do you just go after businesses with large transaction volumes that hopefully weren't picked up by competitors like bolt cuz so i know they're pretty um, out there right now um you know just on a, on a oh yeah
1: no uh, never mind go ahead
0: Okay. No, but what I was gonna say was like on on a personal note, like it's very this is very interesting because these are kind of challenges that a lot of gov tech players kind of went through as well. Um, the norm is like you start out you start out as a corporation, right? This is this is a path that actually we followed. This is a path that a lot of different people have actually followed. And the way it works is that you start off as a normal corporation and, and then you want to build something for consumers, right? Um, as you work on the consumer product, you kind of start noticing that, oh, maybe our customer acquisition costs are going to be through the roof, which is going to require us to have a massive marketing budget. Um, because we need to not only convince people that abstract is a thing for them when they need to worry about politics, but we need to even convince them that we need that app ab- that they should care about politics initially, you know. So they do that and then they end up pivoting into something like um say B2B sales and like B2B turns a bit better because now you're dealing with people whose job it is to work with legislation and then you go after corporations. So it's like pivoting to corporations is something very common in this industry. And then with the the added challenge that, you know, say we kind of go after is that, you know, if you have an ACV, that's not as high as like five to six figures. And it's all this white glove, high touch
1: BS. To clarify that um, means annual contract value. Just for yeah, people. yeah,
0: exactly. So like with, with most of the people selling software, like Google and Ubers and everyone, like it's what I want to say 130, 120,000, like hours is nowhere as high. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the actual value, but um, don't. <laughs> yeah i should not um so it's all like when you when you have an acv that's not as high it just becomes a question of scale right do you want to cover the right jurisdictions that people care about do you want to streamline things that have never been streamlined before and just give your product more value which is the benefit of a stagnant industry because there's a lot that hasn't been streamlined um most of the players that have come across this issue in this industry were able to persevere. So. Personally, I'm kind of excited to see where Fast is headed. I mean, I know they're looking for a seller right now, but you know, from what I've heard, is that the product is actually not bad. And if they're able to dig themselves out of a hole, or if under new management they're able to dig themselves out of a hole, um, it just might be a great recovery thing. Because I think my 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 thirst for you know companies going down in a public stage. Is definitely something that I've seen with you know, I've I've had that thirst quenched a little bit, right? You know, we've seen the WeWorks, we've seen Theranosis, like that's good, that's done. Um so yeah, we, we gotta you're into this story.
1: like uh, economic uh, sadomasochism, basically.
0: A, a little bit, <laughs> kind of, but no, but now like I'm kind of like trying to like, turn the tables a little bit and kind of seeing, okay, fast seems like they're headed that way, right? But I'm I'd be very curious to see if they're actually to like get out of it. And then, you know, even because a lot of the issues that they're going through are common in GovTech, you know, it's just things that me as a founder in GovTech would anticipate like years in the future. And just like it gets to kind of thinking about how you kind of, you know, get yourself out of it or how how do you kind of like avoid these obstacles? Um, I do think, however, to kind of transition to the next thing that we're going to be talking about, that they have an added obstacle that they're unable to avoid, which is the scary, scary headlines that have kind of been coming up with right. like, the Fed and inflation and just the VC market as a yeah. whole. So,
1: as a segue, you can say that there there are risk factors that you can control for and respond to as a founder. Yeah. Um, just because whether and how they occur is kind of more so in your hands as the person calling shots in the business. But then again, there are risks that just kind of hit you from the macro environment that you really have no direct control over, and uh, you have to respond to just like anyone else. Um, yeah. let me look, let me, let me, let me start by saying this. Um, I it's, it's been a long time since I was in investment banking, but I do have friends in IB, yeah. um, among people doing deals in the tech space, one thing that I have heard, which actually raised my eyebrows, cause I, I was not expecting this at all. Um, I heard one banker tell me that a lot of their deal flow has basically dried up as of late. Oh, so this is somebody really? in the MA space, right? So acquisitions that were done <coughs> excuse me acquisitions that were done as as part of aqua hires or outright technology acquisitions or acquisitions of somebody else's like you know customer base or you know their their mm-hmm. client list or th- those really aren't of m- much interest to anyone anymore right now if anybody's buying they're buying for cash flows specifically i mean they're looking for startups that are um capable of basically immediately adding to their top line revenue come next earnings call because they just want to shine from a shitty pack. And this seems to be across the board. So right now it's just like, if they're buying you, they're buying you because you have top line revenue and you have some good metrics beneath that, you know, like good margins, good retention, good, that kind of thing. Wow. So it's not
0: even about like the tech or anything. Is this just, okay. How much revenue are you making?
1: No, people buying stuff out for patents. That's not really. it's not an IP acquisition. Like those have slowed down tremendously. Like if we're spending money, we're doing it to bring money in at the top line. That's what's happening. Interesting. Uh, which so I'm kind of reminds me. I'm like, curious to
0: see. Yeah, Wait, go for it. Um, I was going to say it was. It's actually very interesting because it makes me question. Like, say, deep tech, for example. You know, deep tech was very big because you know you you can acquire the IP of of like specific models that were built that do this one specific function better than yeah. any other player can. So now, if you know I'm a large corporation, I'm trying to look into the deep tech industry for buying someone or some, some corporation, Right. Um, I only look at the financials and like maybe a little bit into the product metrics, but not into the tech well, at all. That, here's the thing. If
1: buying the deep tech suddenly opens the door to some enormous new contract that it directly adds to your top line, then maybe those acquisitions will continue to go through. But things yeah. that are kind of more speculative and more like, hey, let's bring that team in-house and give them our resources and see what else they can come up with over the next you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months, those those deals are just simply no longer happening. They are not of interest anymore. Um, Interesting. So here's the thing. As a rule, generally speaking, an investment bank, when the market turns or is expected to turn... They shift their workforce from sort of an M&A and uh, equity capital markets focus to more restructuring, refinancing type positions. Um, and that's because the companies or their clients, you know, prospective clients, incentives and priorities all shift. Mm, so there's no point of keeping massive M&A staff if not much M&A is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to look at like US investment bank hiring patterns, but if there is truly a clear shift in that sense, and you can kind of do this with some very high level scraping and data analysis. Mm-hmm. If that pattern is clear, then I would say a recession is basically a foregone conclusion. It's around the corner. And again, I'm not an oracle in saying this. Many people have been saying things about slowdowns and recessions in recent recent times. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, look, as you can imagine, like what began with like the collapses and the multiples of publicly traded tech companies on the public markets. You know, ARR falling back down to earth, like in the 30, 40 range, as opposed to like a hundred, what it was like a year ago, a year and a half. Right. Um, this became a slowdown in the private markets, particularly in later stage. And that continues to sort of trickle its way down to the very early stages first. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not seeing as many $10 million seed deals as I was like a year ago, a year and a half ago. Right. You know, um, internally, there's always going to be talk of like, hey, when do we actually mark these down? And I'm pretty sure that as soon as somebody somewhere, some high profile tier one you know, publicly uh, discloses or has it leaked that they have marked down a high profile, extremely expensive pandemic era investment, it's going to set off a tidal wave of these markdowns. Um, yeah. you know, I, I've seen people have discussions um, about having to, for example, double their revenue growth expectations over the next years. So that hopefully they can get a flat round the year after, um, compared to the round they did during the pandemic at some crazy, crazy multiple.
0: Oh, that's actually quite a couple of, uh, like speaking to a lot of friends, like founder friends here as well. they they do carry that sentiment as well. Um, a lot yeah. of them have been saying like, oh, we need to, what was it like 5 X, 10 X our revenue just because yeah, we raised when, when everyone was like throwing money around and now people just. For some reason, are obsessed with metrics and they're obsessed with revenue and cash cash flow and just like and contribution margins and retention and
1: these other things that yeah. matter when money is scarce.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: You know? So um Carta the other day was reporting an all-time high in terms of the options that have yet to be exercised by eligible employees. So they have, you oh. know, they they have vested and not been exercised. Um, one way to think of this, by the way, is that employers are kind of hoarding cash, believing that they're gonna need it in the near future. Maybe they have some insight into how to has to uh, you know, the company's plans to shrink headcount or something. Another way to think about this is that employees may have become painfully aware that when they exercise their options, the stock they're gonna get is not gonna be, is not actually gonna be worth anything by the time they want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think no matter how I've been trying to find a positive aspect to this. Like why would your shares vest and you not take them? Yeah. But almost every version of events just seemed negative to me. All of it just seems like bad news. True.
0: I mean, because that's the number one thing, like even getting, becoming a founder, that's the number one thing people tell you. It's like, oh, shares are what matter the most. Do shares. Always stick to shares.
1: Yeah. But so the like, fact you know, that people now
0: have the option for that.
1: Billions you know? of dollars worth of shares not being exercised. They're just letting them sit. Um, that is, yeah. You can't really spin
0: that up into something good. That's a, That is a red flag for sure.
1: Yeah, so you know all this talk, it, it does really make it seem like a recession is sort of on the horizon, um, as opposed to just hey maybe the tech markets are kind of taking a break from the crazy run up during the pandemic. But uh, I mean, for one, they are taking a break. But you know, this is part of a, a general macro story that is not unique to the tech sector. Um, so there are other indicators, you know, beyond the things that I've mentioned so far, that things look like they are in the, you know in, in the middle of a slowdown. First off, there's the classic, there's the inversion of the yield curve, you know, where two years okay. are yielding more than 30 years and, and, and that sort of a thing. Everyone's been mm-hmm. talking about that. That has become very, very evident. And generally speaking, like, you know, as a rule, as a heuristic over the last couple of decades, that has been pretty good at predicting recessions. There is another more of a niche metric, but maybe even more accurate in terms of predicting upcoming recession, which is what's called the euro dollar curve inversion. Um, okay. So for the unfamiliar, the euro dollar, um, all that, this is a term that came up long before the euro was even an idea. Um, the a euro dollar is basically a dollar that's being deposited at a financial institution outside the United States hmm. Okay, is the bank term for it. Um, so that the inversion of that curve basically means that US dollars outside the US are in such high demand that accounts bearing them yield higher interest rates in the next 12 months than in the 12 months after that, or so is the expectation. And when there's a massive rush for like liquid currency for cash, you know, people are always scared. Yeah. You know, and this is, again, this is, this is, um, the dollar outside the U S so that implies that there may be more of an international, you know, concern of economic stability as opposed to, a as opposed to a, oh, this is just the U S tech sector or, oh, just the U S. Yeah. Um, so when the world is just looking for the reserve currency, however long the US dollar remains or a reserve currency um that then it's easier to make the case that there's a worldwide fear um you ask what I think the core catalyst of this recession will be a little while ago. So two thousand and eight obviously it was mortgage-backed securities and the derivative structures built on top of them. We know that because right. we've watched big short thirty thousand times and it's very clear. God I love that movie yeah it's it's so great. it's so Synthetic great. CDOs. It's so Um, so this time around, I mean, it's anybody's guess, but my gut, my gut says it's inflation and all of its secondary effects. So, you know, unemployment, you know, it's low right now because of the number of people who have dropped out of the workforce, as opposed to how many people seem to have gotten jobs. Um, this is all while inflation is at 40 year highs. So by the way, definitions of inflation and unemployment to the US are, are very, very nuanced and can really wildly swing your understanding of what's happening in markets. So when you right. stop looking for a job, you're no longer unemployed. Not having a job and looking for one is unemployed. So oh. it's a little weird, you know, the way it's counted, very. but you know, yeah. and then, um, inflation has all kinds of chicanery in it, but that's like a whole other episode. Mm. Um, so. By the way, I'd like to remind you that the same clowns who told you that inflation would be transitory a year ago are the ones who are telling us that all is well now. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. That, that was actually a funny thing of like uh, something I found on Twitter as well. It's like basically quotes from the Fed where like inflation's transitory. Okay. We're looking at rate, rate hikes in like two years. We're looking at rate hikes next year. And then we're like, oh, we're con- seriously considering great. Hike. It's like yeah. all these, you, you kind of like, they seemed so stable and so calm and like, formal about these quotes, but you see the panic once you start grouping up a lot of these quotes, like over time.
1: There's a, a clip of Ben Bernanke from, I think it was early 2008. This is before Countrywide Mortgage went belly up in, in March and before Bear Stearns and all of that, before the real calamity yeah. and, and towards the end of the year, um, uh-huh. where he is very clearly talking, you know, addressing Congress and saying that the Fed does not currently forecast a recession in the United States. Like what the <laughs> fuck? I mean, wow it's just in retrospect it looks like a doctor looking at some patient who just now got you know shot in the chest and and, and the doctor saying we, we don't really forecast this guy bleeding out anytime soon um yeah. <laughs> it's it's just it's so bizarre when you have the you know the the, the hindsight but anyhow um so when you have super low unemployment and super high inflation that basically screams interest rate hike right, right so you know it, it's hard to imagine rates nowadays of even two to three percent on like fed funds rate uh-huh. um just conceptually it's so weird for a world that's been at like zero for like 12 years or more like 14 years basically 2008 or yeah. close to zero um and that two to three percent federal funds rate um, you know in theory according to the fed this should combat combat eight percent inflation I mean your yeah. real rates are still technically negative. So, True. you know, it, it's just it makes it makes no sense. So the SuperHawks will say, "Oh, but you know, let's just raise let's just raise rates to 12%, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's 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 fine when uh, the economy is in a much uh, stronger position, but I can't imagine the US actually remaining stable with 12% like Volcker early 80s rates what he did to combat inflation then. True. Um it, it it's just, you know, I, I um even that rate eight percent. You know, if you calculate it with like the pre nineteen eighty criteria, then you're well north of that. You're like I think around fourteen percent, and even when you wow. couple it with some of the news you hear, it's hard to imagine eight percent being accurate. I mean, your gasoline bill and your food bill went up way more than eight percent, and for a lot of people, oh. that's most of their income, food and Absolutely. fuel.
0: You know, yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's actually the one funny thing that I kind of noticed is like now when I go to the gas station, like I don't, I, I can't even go from empty to full. I always do like half tanks because it just makes the most sense because next thing you know, you, you go from, you, you fill up your entire tank and it's like close to a hundred bucks like that yeah. people that, that's, that's not normal, <laughs> you know?
1: No. So, and so like, remember how the, cheap gas was not all that long ago. So
0: no, yeah, exactly. Because because keep in mind, like the twenty twenty July twenty twenty, when you and I kind of left LA, we went back to Kuwait for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, what was gas like? Two bucks, three bucks, two and change. Yeah, yeah. it was it was nothing. So it was very surprising to kind of come back and see it at four, and now it's at like six, seven. Some places have it at ten. Right. Surprisingly, so so the very crazy thing about that is like you now I'm now feeling the real life effects of inflation. And then I'm only seeing it go up like half a point, one point and a half, you know, where where it goes, okay, it's at six point eight, it might be
1: seven soon, it might be yeah. 7. There, there's, a there's, of, no there's a lot of there's a lot of politics in keeping that low, let's be honest. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, but you know, I I I have trouble believing those rates, you know, seven, eight hey. percent. I think you can't double the money supply in two years and only have seven eight percent inflation. That's crazy. But exactly. um Shrinkflation, by the way, is everywhere. Like in the U.S., you know, the the packaged goods are kind of shrinking in terms of their quantity, in terms of their portions, but the prices are remaining generally the same or even coming up. Like that's very dishonest inflation. That's shrinkflation. Um, German retailers today, a lot of them are warning of like you know the repricing of popular food products by twenty to fifty percent higher in the coming months and we still don't know what's going to happen to like world food supply in 12 months time because of the fertilizer shortages now and keep in mind now is roughly when you start planting fields around the world exactly um, this all remains to be seen and that will definitely push uh food prices higher um the fuel situation still don't know much about that either it's right. um well i, I mean
0: know. the one thing that the one the one thing that they said about the the fuel part is um You know, Biden just announced that they're going to be releasing a million barrels a month. I think from their reserves, but a month um, was it a month or a day? I'm
1: not too sure. I mean, if it's like the U.S. uses like 20 million barrels a day, so a month, one million a month isn't gonna do shit. True, it
0: might. It it must have been a day. I think it is a day. But you know, even even with that, the, the the confusing part about it is like, what's what's that gonna do? You know, if if the U.S. uses 20 million 20 million barrels a day, you're releasing one. 1 million a day for a sake of 5% and then. Yeah. So it's not much. And then like, even considering the rest taking the, the rest of the world into consideration, like, I think what's like global oil production. I think it's like 995, or like 95 million barrels a day. just across it, the entire planet.
1: Well, the U S uses about like a fifth or a quarter or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So might it might be like 95 ish. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not too sure but um yeah i mean you look at that type of stuff and it's like okay it took you all this policy and all this drafting and voting and fighting and now you're just doing it a million a day like that's right that could help i don't think
1: it well will. in positive news the uk announced today that they're going to build seven more nuclear reactors so
0: that's awesome and the reason carbon. it's awesome is because you know pretty much the past five episodes i think we've been t- talking about how that's a better yeah it's
1: great so fuel source yeah um you know, all I know is like, I'm, I'm, I'm just hoarding Bitcoin because I don't know what these idiots are going to do, but uh, <laughs> I feel. Um, yeah. So, you know, with all of these headwinds, with people feeling poorer, right? Like think of all the, like the consumer focused startups and how they're going to eat shit um, when you, their intended target has less discretionary income because of overall inflation, because of food and fuel. Imagine, mm-hmm. you know, by the way that's going to trickle down to like business sentiment and you're going to start seeing the hit in like b2b startups oh, yeah. um by the way there's another point that a lot of like you know monetary um economics analysts and just you know internet fanboys or whatever tend to miss right it's uh you know i still remember in 2011 um it was my last year of college and i still remember seeing this thing on the news saying this year the first baby boomer turns 65 2011. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So the baby boomers were 46 to 64, and they were increasing uh-huh. for the 10 years after 46, and then decreasing for the 10 years prior to 64. Just that bump in in uh-huh. massive population like post World War II U.S. population growth, right? Yeah. Um. So the first baby boomer retires in 60. It retires. I mean, sorry. It becomes eligible for certain benefits at 65 at at uh, in 2011. And that number continues to go up for the 10 years prior to that um yeah 10 or 11 i am the math wrong but anyhow you know a lot of them are getting older they're claiming more and more retirement benefits they're becoming more and more expensive in terms of annual cost of living Mm -hmm. where do you think the returns to pay for their livelihoods come from like besides social security it's It's there it's their pensions and, and their 401ks yeah. and all this crap that they have. Like it's all invested in the public markets, mainly in the U S markets. They need those numbers to go up. It's very exactly. hard for the government politically to kind of sit, sit quietly by as like the Dow tanks, you know, yeah. Like you, you have to analyze the incentives and how these things are really, um, very closely interlinked. Um, mm-hmm. and by the way, what, what do they spend all that money on? Cost of living Cost. Yeah,
0: mainly. Exactly. You know?
1: cost of living yeah. so if if the latter shoots up imagine the position the government is in when the former falls off a cliff right if returns on investments start falling because like um you know the 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 market just start ta- taking a dive the equities market what are they going to do imagine the position they're in so yeah it, it feels like the position that the u.s government is in because of a the market and b the, the population th- there's really no way out of this but to print, right? They go into more yeah. and more debt by issuing more and more treasuries, which are bought by people because there's a giant secondary market of people who buy them from you, no matter what, called the Fed. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they yeah, I mean demand for treasuries is artificially inflated. Let's be honest, for like a multiple, multiple yeah. reasons. A, the Fed is buying every damn treasury you can find, and B, um, you know, a lot of a lot of states have it in in their own like central bank reserves. Mm-hmm. Um it, it feels like there's no way out but to continue to print, to prop up the cost of living, to, 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 yeah. to prop up, you know, people's way of covering the cost of living in the U.S. And exactly. what, how is that going to change? Like, un- unless like, you know, a quarter billion people over the age of 65 just like kill themselves at the same time all around the world, that's not going right. to change right? That or or like, you know, a quarter billion uh, uh, people are born today and they age 30 years in one year and, you know, become productive and start paying into the system, which is also not going to happen. So it it just feels like we are primed for recession and it feels like tech is absolutely not the only market to see that on the horizon and begin to act like it with their, you know, markdowns and and revising kind of LP expectations and that sort of thing. So yeah. deal flow in VC is slowing down in terms of investment appetite and, you know, acquisition prospects and, and just kind of multiple contraction. That just does yeah. not make sense for this, you know, high value MA to continue and speculative MA to continue in the near term. Um, exactly. also the sky is burning and we're all going to die and we should hoard canned food.
0: <laughs> that's kind of true. I, I'm, I have a, I have like a a small jar of bottle caps just in case lying on my desk, you know, in case that becomes a new currency, Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I I think that's, 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 I think you, you, you just hit on it. It's like, you know, we are headed for a very, very interesting, you know, even rest of 2022, we're still in April. It's pretty early. Right. Right. Um, and just seeing what's going to happen these next couple of years, seeing what's going to happen with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation, what sort of shortages that's going to create, short, like what sort of um, added wars, maybe if this isn't like solved diplomatically, um, there's a lot of the question marks right now and very uncertain, like high, I guess, points of entropy in our global system that's just going to mess up a lot of things coming up, and I think. Um, So one of our investors, Alex Rubelkova, had a very good point about it in a talk that he recently gave, which is, you know, this is going to kind of, and and we spoke about this as well a couple of episodes ago, but it's like this whole notion of, yeah, like businesses across, like ignoring any sort of industry that's out there, businesses across the board are going to feel the pinch of this when this happens, not even if this happens. Um, And it's just going to, it's going to create a new breed of leadership or a new breed of ceo that's just going to have to be okay yeah. with chugging along in an industry with ridiculous inflation recessions wars pandemics you know uh-huh. um it's just yeah that's it, just i i'm not sure if this is gonna you know hopefully the dust will settle from the recession will have like somewhat st- some sort of stability in the in the, in the road ahead but besides that, like, yeah, as, as founders and as investors, and just like being a member of this entire thing, you just don't know whether you should adjust or persevere or resist or yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of question marks really.
1: Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot going on, but one thing we know for sure is that we are not about to get a repeat of the pandemic super tech highs in the near term.
0: Oh, not at all. Yeah, I think those those are honestly over. And then anyone, you know, anyone with a paper with, with an idea scribbled on a on a napkin trying to raise something at like a fifteen mil valuation, it's just it's going to be a thing of the past very soon, pretty much. Yeah, definitely. Yeah,
1: but fun also, times though. Also, least... the sky is burning, and we should hoard canned food. <laughs>
0: exactly. But and then, do you know where we should we should eat that canned food? Where. Uh, Behind home plate at Petco Park, <laughs> right <laughs> for
1: free, <laughs> for free, <laughs> exactly. Like Jake pv will give you a back massage while you eat at Petco Park.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think honestly, like
1: that's what MLB has to do in order to to fill um, parks in a recession. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That reminds but, so, me of games in two thousand eight. It was just like nobody. 0809
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. I remember I I've, I went to a couple in San Diego as well. I think we've been to a couple in San Diego in no We have I mean.
1: Padres tickets from the games we went to in 08, but they're in your room in the on the cork on the board. Oh yeah. I have I have like a board right? where I have all my things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I like yeah. that. Good times. You, so. I can't wait for the season to kind of kick off again. It's because now now I'm kind of, you know, realizing what people say when they when they say like watching sports is more of an escape, you know. When I was when I was like a student here, I was like, okay, escape from what doing homework? Fine, I'll just do homework while I'm watching the game. But now it's like with everything that's been going on, it's like, oh shit! Okay, I I I see the need to kind of switch off and just watch millionaires hit a ball around for a little bit and then kind of go back go back to work. Yeah, you know, I I just
1: the the people who say sports is a waste of time have no idea that you know the 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 cost in terms of time or capital is just. It's just so much cheaper than getting therapy. Right? True, true. Like, as a grown man, I can yell at a TV screen and throw a fit. But when we say he's watching sports, it's cool. It's fine. It's it's fine. All those excuses. Yeah. Exactly.
0: But, yeah. I got to roll. Crazy times you're living in. Likewise. Yeah. I got a long day of work. And then, uh, pretty much it, honestly. Just
1: work. <laughs> Ew. All right. Peace. Beautiful already